Welcome to episode 20 of the Hockey Masterclass. Darren Gill here alongside Coach John Goins as always. John, this week you were a little fired up on social media. I, I don't think we can uh, let that go. So uh, what got you excited this week? What got me excited as we're about to welcome in our, our guest here. So if he, he speaks here during a little bit of banter going into the episode. Hey, uh, hey, Weeksy, how are you? Gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate that. I was on another Zoom and couldn't get off with uh, Bridget Whitney and Codette LaBarbera. You might recognize those last names. Ray Whitney's yep. wife and uh, Codette, they have their Our Hockey Life podcast. So I was on with them and they we had a couple um, tech issues. So I didn't want to cut them short. So I appreciate your patience. Thank, thank you. you. No, pro- no problem. So you just got on as, as Darren was starting off the episode and and he said I was a little fired up on social media this week and I I'm usually pretty quiet and pretty reserved you know I push the the episodes but there was one thing that that really bugged me and it, it partially ties into what we're going to talk about today sure um, is this video that went viral about this training video of kids learning to fight and a lot of people laughed it off. A lot of people put out commentary like, oh, look at that. That's locker room boxing at its best. Sure. And and in French here in Quebec, they call it Casgain. And as you and I have discussed off the air, it turns out that like we have more than six degrees of separation of, you know, in the hockey world of people we know. And, sure. you know, when people talk about burning the game down, to the floor and, and what's wrong with the game in terms of the culture and all this type of stuff. Well, I hate to break it to, you know, the adults in the room, but if that's your child that comes out of a locker room where they were bullied into a locker room, uh, locker room boxing match, I guarantee you you're busting down that door because that pushes kids away from the game. I don't care if it's single letters quote-unquote elite level hockey that's the stuff we need out of the game this this macho-ness that kids need to go toe-to-toe and duke it out and what happens is we see that they film things and and it goes viral and and now I'm not going to even name names but you know there are people that have influence on social media as quote-unquote developers or skill guys and they were laughing this off and and to me you know, some people have like 650,000 followers that kids go to see their content and they're pushing this off. They're liking it. They're, they're, they're laughing about it. Uh, that's, that's not about making the game better, safer, more inclusive. Um, I don't know, Kevin, if you, if you saw the video, I know we're, we're getting off probably uh, on another topic here, but this this got me really fired up on social media this week because safe and fun environments have to be at the heart of grassroots and, and hockey in general. Sure. Uh, I didn't see it specifically, and I don't miss much. I didn't see this one, but I had heard about it. And I, I certainly, I know where you're coming from. I can tell you that we had that probably for maybe one season. We had that probably about four times in, in our dressing rooms growing up in Toronto the Toronto Red Wings at, at one point, but it wasn't something that was prevalent. It, it may have happened maybe four times, I want to say, but I, I totally understand where you're coming from and not everybody's comfortable enough to do that. Not everybody should get goaded into doing it. Not everybody's wired for doing it. And and not everybody has the mentality to that's, that's really aligned with that. You know, there's only a few players on, on any team that would even want to fight in a game situation period you know, heaven forbid, even if a brawl broke out, even still, even at the NHL level, there's only a few players that, that are going to want to go toe-to-toe in a brawl if if uh, if an old-school brawl breaks out, so let alone doing it in, in a staged way. So I totally understand where you're coming from, and that is, you know, that is serious, and your points are valid in the event that if that was, I don't know, person A's daughter that was doing it in, in their girls' team or person A's son or grandson or whatever that was doing it, they or felt like they were ridiculed for not doing it. Even if you take that approach, they'd be upset by it for sure. No question. So Kevin, an official welcome. We didn't give you the, uh, the grand introduction yet. We didn't play your theme song. We didn't have you kind of ride uh-huh. in 
Uh, but appreciate you joining us. Spent 11th season in the NHL, phenomenal goaltender, and um, you know, frankly, is also uh, currently the face of the NHL Network. It seems like every time I turn it on, at least you're the face. So whether you are or aren't, certainly you're the guy I always see. Um, so you're doing a phenomenal job in front of the camera, and uh, certainly did a great job in the crease, and also currently a member of the player inclusion committee. So multiple roles, wearing multiple hats as always. And we're, we're really happy to have you. So thanks for joining us. Appreciate that, man. Thanks in advance. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. So I think it is helpful for you to even give our listeners a little bit of um, your minor hockey history. As I think John's told you, our podcast focuses on minor hockey development. You did drop the kind of Toronto Red Wings uh, name there a minute ago. So talk to us about uh, your development. And at what age did you become a goaltender? I started playing at six. Uh, you know, I played street hockey with my older cousin and his his friends, which were born in 1968, 67, 66. I'm born in 75. So I started playing street hockey with them and then went to go register at world famous St. Mike's Arena back home in Toronto. Uh, the hockey shrine that St. Mike's is. Started playing house league there for Toronto Olympics and played two years there at six, seven. And then when I turned eight, I went to try out as an underage for Toronto Red Wings our then now late coach, the great Keith Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong, picked me as an underage for that team. And that would have been, yeah, I was eight years old. And at that point, our captain was Mike Pekka. We had a lot of other different buddies and players that went on to play pro, play in the OHL, play junior, played Europe. And there could have even been more, I think. But that was kind of what, what got me started off. Right from my, as we say here in the U.S., great second grade as we say back home in Canada first grade uh grade one rather right from then I wrote a, I wrote a book and Miss Mahar was our teacher and I illustrated drew like myself as a goalie a scoreboard with the NHL logo on it and from that point on I was going to the, to the NHL that was that I was going to the NHL that was that so I played uh Toronto Red Wings I played underage so I was 13 then came back down to 75s and then played a little up and down still with the Red Wings. And I mean, up and down age levels a little bit until my midget year played up a little bit with, with uh, St. Mike's ironically enough, the buzzers, the tier two team, and then went to the OHL, did my three years in the O, two years in Owen sound my last year in Ottawa. And then uh, was drafted by Florida after my first year in the OHL Panthers, second round pick, and then rode the bus in the minors after I turned pro Right, literally for my rookie year in, in the American League, I was a starting goalie in the HL, which was great because I got a lot of games in for those two years and went to Fort Wayne. That was their then IHL affiliate, rode the bus there. We went from worst to first. John Torchetti was coaching us. Great man. You would know the name. He's coaching the NHL from, you know, different stops. Stanley Cup winner with Chicago Blackhawks and coached in, in major junior as well uh, and in the Quebec League, actually. So was there and then signed with him during a, a contract impasse the next year, him and Steve Ludzik that ran the Detroit Vipers at the time, signed there, was IHL goal of the year, and then my rights got traded to Vancouver and got up to the NHL and then never looked back after that. So again, another 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 contact that we have in common, Torch. I mean, Torch, I've known uh, my yeah. brother played for him in Moncton. Oh, there you loved go. Playing for him. Yeah. yeah. Love playing for him. And the man. ever since yeah, absolutely. And uh, hockey, hockey lifer, hockey junkie. Totally. Um, and uh, for m myself uh, as a younger coach, uh, you know, even when I was still in midget, Torch was uh, a, a guy that always gave time. And, and you know, he, he's always looking to also help other coaches and, and players full time, like not not, totally. not just in season, almost 13 months a year. Yeah. Um, time. For anyone that's going to for, for any of the critics out there, I do know there's 12 months. I just <laughs> like to be a little bit sarcastic here, but it's all good. Well, we'll before up. we get on to, yeah, before we get on to a few other topics, because, yeah. you know, we, we discussed this prior. One thing I did notice about your progression in the game was, and, and I think this is a really important message. The game was different in terms of how it was played and, and what goalie stats look like for guys yeah. coming out of junior, right? Like people can go and look up Patrick Waz. Yeah, exactly. Insane. Like yeah. you're like, how did this guy make it? But talk a bit about that because so many parents and so many kids are so concerned about stats 
in banners at a young age. And if they just look at the progression of, say, a Patrick Waugh or a Kevin Weeks, statistically, you got better with age at the highest level and had better numbers Mm -hmm. than being stuck in a rut because your bantam year or your midget year was – you know, yeah. five point whatever goals against average. Talk a bit, a bit of how how did you get past that, or you know how you maybe didn't focus on those things, and and what did you focus on? Great question. I mean, you know, for me, I always wanted to, and playing on those good teams growing up, we we were often elite or among the elite or the best team in the province or the best team in the country. So, and I never wanted to just be along for the ride. You know, every tournament we were going to, we want to win, and. We, we envisioned winning the trophy, whether it's Kitchener Oktoberfest, whether it was North Bay Tournament, Marley's Tournament, Old Esso Cup, Kamloops Bantam Tournament, you name it, you know, Sudbury Big Nickel Tournament or any of the tournaments in the States. It was about winning, but winning and, and, and being a contributor in that, right? And playing well and getting on these tournament all-star teams and being MVP of the tournament or goalie of the tournament and player of the game and all those stuff, all those things drove me. But at the heart of it, it was being a key component of a team and not wanting to let my teammates down and wanting to perform. I'm wired to perform, and which is why I do TV now. But that was a big part of it. And at the same time, I also knew that a lot of it, as a, like my parents never had to, I always say I wasn't a lawnmower player. I'm not a lawnmower person. So my parents never had to pull start me like, let's go, let's go. And never, ever, ever, ever at any age. So that was a big part of a separator for me. So the talent, the skill, athleticism, all those things were what they were. And those were at you know a high level, clearly. But a lot of it was my wiring. It was my, let's get to the rink. Let's go back to the rink. Can't wait to get to the rink. Let's go to power skating. Let's go to power skating. Let's go to goalie school. I'm going to go to the Y and work out. I want to go and run in Jack Goodlad Park. I want to go do stairs at Lamaru Community Center. That was a big part of it for me is that and and sometimes to your question, the stats wouldn't always align with that. Not as much in minor hockey, but even in junior, the stats didn't align with that. But I knew that my rookie year junior, I was playing with another ace in Jamie Storr. Like, imagine that. Like, we were one of the only duos in CHL history. I don't know, maybe one of three or four, four or five, where both goalies ended up making the NHL that played together. So imagine day to day. We've got Storzy in one net, I'm in the other net, and we have these other players, Andrew Burnett, who led the, the nation in goals and, and points, 162 points my rookie year in junior, he had, Bruno. And then uh, NCHL Player of the Year, and people were mocking him, saying he couldn't skate. Then he went on to play over 1,000 games in the league and is an assistant coach, as you know, to this day, uh, currently with Florida. Panthers, that is. And then we had Scotty Walker in our group. Walks ended up playing in the league for all those years. He was CHL Defenseman of the Year. He had 91 points. And then we had uh, Wayne Primo, who played in the league for, for as long as Prems did. You know, I can go up and down in terms of guys that played, but there were also other guys that didn't play that were really good and could have played. And literally, I was grading myself against them every freaking day from my, like, when I walked in the doors in Owen Sound, every day. Like, let's go, extra practice, extra shots, more practice, more. I was skinny as a rail. Let me be in the weight room. I want to get jacked. I got to get size. I got to get size. I got to get stronger. So a lot of it was really process driven too, as much as we're in the results business to answer you, a lot of it was process driven. And, and that was, that was really able to help me push forward beyond just looking at the stats alone. Um, So you nailed two things. So first of all, you talked about performing and that's why you're on TV. Let's, you know, our, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't share the, the uh, visual part of the podcast. So the other part is yeah, uh, we did read up on you and, and, interior designing i yeah. mean the room behind you is just <laughs> spectacular so i i think there's going to be potentially a side gig on hgtv as well uh for the performance uh, aspect thank you but um yeah you did mention one word and, and this is what happens with these types of podcasts where we're we have a certain structure we have certain topics we want to discuss sure but we also want to build on on the conversation and you mentioned athleticism mm-hmm. and you mentioned athleticism. We know you are heavily interested and have been implemented in, in goalie development and goalie camps. Yeah. There's a big trend now that a couple of teams have now started establishing goalie departments with their organizations at the NHL level. Sure. 
Why does it seem in some cases athleticism has been a big miss in the goaltending position for, say, the last 10, 15, 20 years and its relevance to a goalie's longevity, whether it be in performance or just in the game in general? Everybody has their own kind of lens that they see the game through. I start with the fact that if you're playing a sport, then you are an athlete, in which case you should be athletic. So, you know, I kind of start with that. And then as you kind of build upon that and, and that foundation, you know, that looks different for every goalie. I think there's some common denominators that you have to have. Uh, as, for example, you, I really think skate, I wouldn't be here unless I became a great skater. You have to be a great skater. I think that's super helpful. And then, of course, then you start layering in competitive fire, toughness, uh, be mentally strong, resilience, uh, being relentless, as Tim Grover says, all those different things for sure. Hardworking, super dedicated to the craft, being a student and always wanting to learn and evolve. All those things are important. But for a while, people used to frown on athleticism like they would they, they were kind of frowning at it in terms of different people in media and or different hockey people they are like, oh, he's too athletic. What do you mean? Like, he not he playing a sport? Like, he's not working at PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> like, you, you, once they're, once they have a, a higher level of athleticism, that's a gift. And if you can harness that, and if you can work on that and refine that um, to where they're not necessarily only dependent on that, and if you can blend that with technique and and some of those technical elements and foundational things, and you can blend that and put that together, then you're cooking with gas. I mean, it's exactly what. Bill Ranford was able to do with the great Jonathan Quick out in LA. Like Quickie, you remember how athletic Bill Ranford was when he played at the time? Quickie's a supreme athlete. That guy is raw power, explosive, powerful, in great shape, bigger body type, powerful body type, huge legs, huge driving force and accelerated power. But it's not as though they looked at that and said, oh my God, he's too athletic. We're not going to let him play for us. You know, they built the technical elements into that and around that. And, and allowed that to shine. And the rest is history. You know, he's won two Stanley Cups for them. And he'll go down, I think, now, at least as of now, as the best U.S.-born goalie in NHL history, maybe to this point. Maybe Connor Hellebuck or Gibson maybe eclipses that. And some of the other guys like a Spencer Knight at Boston College might. Who knows? We'll see what they do. But uh, right now, Jonathan Quick would be a great example. And I just think that there's some trends. At the time, people were, were frowning upon athletic goalies. After a while, then everything had to be technical. And then the game started opening up. The rules changed after 05-06. You know, There's more lateral plays, more diagonal plays. D were jumping in the play. And now all of a sudden it's okay to be athletic again <laughs> because you have to dive and you have to go a lot more east-west a little bit more. So it just kind of goes part and parcel with the, the different kind of evolutions of the game, I find. So it's been said by many that goaltending is the most important position in hockey. And obviously, no, no. you know, you can't win a Stanley Cup without a good goaltender. It's, oh, you know, history has shown that you need good goaltending to win, right? It's, uh, oh. it's usually a common thread amongst good teams. Now, you know, we talk a lot about development and a lot of what I certainly see, and maybe it's my lens because my son is not a goaltender, is a lot no. of development focused on player development. And yep. is, you know, I, I kind of get the sense that development for goaltenders is lagging a little bit in the NHL level. Obviously we just touched on that, but even kind of at the minor hockey level. And, and I'm not sure why that's happening because obviously, you know, goaltending is important. And I also get the sense that goaltending parents usually understand that they're going to have to shell out a lot of money for equipment and training. And I, and I've only seen, especially in you know, being in Montreal, I'm seeing the evolution. It's a little bit slower. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that development in terms of why the player development world is is full of developers and why maybe the goaltending world is is not as saturated. Okay, so I mean, I'll give Montreal and I'll give Quebec in general prior to prior to right now credit, especially based on the great Francois Benoit and what they've been able to do and all their disciples as goalie coaches and different goalie coaches that have come underneath them. Uh, from there, it's been a, a spawning ground, a breeding ground for goalies, as we know, from uh, obviously starting with Patrick and Marty and Patrick Aleem and Eric Fischel and Jose and all these guys that many of whom went on to have amazing NHL careers and good pro careers and good NHL careers in general. But the reality is, you know, we have a lot of people that talk about hockey. We have a lot of people that say they understand hockey. And quite frankly, hardly anybody really does in general 
especially for a specialized position like goal. And it's so hyper-specialized, our position, that you need people that really understand it to that level and that are able to not only understand it, but they can translate it through their tongue and through their sh- and their ability to show and physically illustrate what they're looking for in terms of coaching goalies. And that goes a really long way. So quite frankly, the supply and demand, the supply of elite goalie coaches just hasn't been there. And quite frankly, even at NHL level, you hear a lot of people say, I don't know anything about goalies. Just getting there and stop the puck. Bro, it's your job to know. What are you talking about? Like you can't say you're a GM of a team you don't understand. You can't say you're a team president you don't understand. More importantly, you can't say you're a head coach. If you don't understand, what are you evaluating? Like, yeah, anybody could see if a goalie lets in a goal from the far end as a bad goal. Like anybody could see that. Our cat could see that. But at the end of the day, on a you know game to game, sequence to sequence, shift to shift, how are you able to evaluate them if you don't really understand? And if you don't understand, that's okay, but it's incumbent on you to learn. So I think that that's a real big part of what you're seeing. I'll give you a great example, guys. You know, I, I used to hear people, there's some NHL goalies that are from the, the Toronto area that are older than me that, you know, I grew up watching and then and I grew up playing with and or against. So I don't know, Kirk McLean, who had an awesome career, Glenn Healy, who won a Stanley Cup with the Rangers and played a long time uh, in behind Mike Richter with the Rangers. There's some other goalies that I can mention too, but quite frankly, Toronto that has the biggest minor hockey system in the world. We can't produce goalies to save our life out of there. <laughs> Honestly, like, and it's funny there. Remember there's only 65, 66 NHL goalies on planet earth out of almost 8 billion people in the first place. And secondly, disproportionately in a bad way, we can't produce goalies out of Toronto produce a heck of a lot of players can't produce goalies. So what does that tell you? What was going on at all those goalie schools and all those hockey camps and all these goalie camps and all the privates, what's been going on? Yeah. Like, let's just be real. And for the longest time that played like GTHL start to finish for the longest time after those guys that I mentioned that were older than me retired, I was the only one literally. So it's nice to see a guy like Jordan Bennington who grew up playing in the G start to finish. Uh, Steve Mason didn't play in the G start to finish, but he played in the G had a really good career, should have played longer because he's really talented, but played well. But Jordan Bennington is the guy now that's carrying the flag, at least from a Toronto perspective, from a minor hockey goalie community, if you will. But it's very rare. And that tells you, and the data tells you, and it should tell, and it tells me, and of course, for the listeners that, to your guys' point, with just the, the training and the goalie coaching, and there's some that are really good. And I get it. NHL goalies are unicorns. They're very rare in the first place, but they're very, very, uh, they're difficult to develop. And unfortunately we should be doing a much better job of developing them. There's no question about it. And and to your point, you know, you you talked about being on minor hockey teams or even in junior with some very good players and, and you're in one net and Jamie stores in another net. Um, I, I've been a big fan of trying to develop this this term of collaborative development, not just individual development. And you know, when you have that kind of competition in practice on a daily basis, I agree with you. Then you should be haphazardly developing uh, some percentage. And you know, we've had a huge, huge drop in Quebec uh, def- uh, goaltenders. Huge yeah. drop. I mean. Right now, Marc Andre Fleury again standing on his head. He's only money. You, know, you talk about athleticism. Money. You talk about reading the game. You know that's a, that's an aspect that I tried to develop as a head coach is understanding goalies that block the puck and goalies right. that actually make a save. Goalies that can read the rush and read sure. the situations, and that helps their awareness. And a goalie that played for uh, for me for three years and you know starred at the World Juniors and Devin Levy. Awesome. That's what allowed. By the way. Love him. Love his game. Please continue. Sorry. No, no. It's you would uh he was he was a guest on an episode and, and we're so happy. And and Tell I him I love just, his game. Please do. Absolutely. And and I think it's just because everybody's in such a hurry. And so and goldies are, you know, there's this, it's like an investment and, and it's gonna take a little bit longer. And you look at a Devin Levy, his first year midget, he was five foot nine. Yeah. You know, but he had massive feet, massive hands. Yeah. And he just kept going. And then 
people criticize his his decision to stay a third year midget, but right. he knew he was going to get starts. He knew he was going to finish high school. Plus, he's born December twenty seventh. So, yeah. what's the hurry? Totally. And and so there there's definitely that. I think blocking the puck became too much of a, a yep. thing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and you know, athleticism. You go back. How many players? I don't know what you played when you were growing up, but. A lot of goalies I knew played baseball, basketball, basketball baseball, but especially basketball. Yeah. Hands, you know, hand, eye coordinate. So those all coordinate, uh, coordinate, uh, for sure. Yeah. I, I would not, uh, be honest, you know, like we talked about it. One aspect of bringing you on was there is a, a huge need to really have these uncomfortable conversation as, Emmanuel Acho does on his platform. Sure. I've been following him since he started that. I think it's been great. Yeah. Um, and you and I talked about it, about, you know, race, hockey, diversity. Um, you know, Darren alluded to your position with the NHL. Maybe you could give us a bit of a description on that. And then I want to get to two questions sure. from former players of mine Yeah, who – just were beaming when I told them that we were bringing you on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Listen, I would say that every person, and I think this is really important for your listeners, no matter where you are, what you look like, where your parents are from, how many vowels are in your last name, what religion you are, what gender, what sexual orientation, where you're from, where your parents are from, what your culture is. Um, I think what's, what's really important for that is Every single person, everybody has a story and everybody's story is unique unto themselves. And everybody's story is of value. Everybody matters. And whether you are white Canadian, whether you're Polish Canadian, whether you're Polish American, whether you're Russian Jewish Canadian, whether you're East Indian Canadian, whether you're indigenous American whether you're British, American, whether you're Black, Caribbean, Canadian, or American, everybody's story is of value. And everybody's grandparents, parents, siblings, cousins, aunts, and the person themselves should be treated with that respect every day in life and in the rink, period. The rink is not an exclusive place for white Canadians only. It's not an exclusive place for white Americans only. The rink is part of community fabric and the fabric of those communities should be reflective in the rinks, both by the people that play, the people that watch, the people that coach, the family members and friends that are in attendance, the people that are employees of the teams, the clubs, and or that work in the building at SoSet Arenas. That's paramount for me. That's where it starts. And anybody, whether you wear a hijab, whether your mom is Scottish, whether your dad plays in a pipe band because he's Irish, whatever it is, whoever you are, you should come into the rink with your shoulders back and your chest up in the air and feel good about who you are. Should never have to feel sheepish. And that level of understanding from people and behavior, because these are adults typically, should be on point across the board. And that's where it starts. So don't give me this. You're coming into the rink and I'm French Canadian and I'm a Quebecer, so I can come in and act different. No. Or you're French Canadian and now you feel embarrassed because your English might not be great and you're a Francophone and now you have to feel less than. That's not fair either. Everybody should come in there and feel good about who they are and what they are. That's where it starts. And I think from there, having that level of acceptance and in the event that that's not the case, whoever it is, especially if it's an adult, they're banned. You're banned for a year if there's any misconduct around that. And if you're a player, you're banned. You get a 10-game suspension. So we set the table there. And, and get that out of the way right off the hop. And then I think as you continue to go from there, what will be important is that you have girls and boys and men and women and family members that feel valued and they feel uh, accepted in the building. And now they want their daughter to continue playing Adam AA. Now they want their, their granddaughter to play midget AAA and then she's Mary Philippe Poulet or she becomes the next Manon Réholm or you know, she becomes the next Hillary Knight here in the U.S. or... Uh, that becomes the next Patrick Kane out of Buffalo, New York, or it's the next Dustin Bufflin, a black player from Roseau, Minnesota. Like these are the possibilities, but I tell you right now, starting at minor hockey level, if that doesn't happen, 
you, you lose a lot of people. And even then, once, once we get up to pro and junior, same thing, NHL level, same thing, same exact thing. And once we continue to grow the game for the right reasons and allow our game to be truly inclusive and not just an old boys club uh, of you know people that are at the same golf course, the same country club, the same cottage that have all the coaching jobs or GM jobs or team president jobs or senior managerial jobs. Once that continues to evolve, you'll see that in our players, you'll see it in the coaches, you'll see it in our fans, you'll see it in the front offices, and ultimately our NHL, from an NHL standpoint, but as I said, starting at grassroots, our NHL revenue will go from $5 billion a year in a regular year, obviously this is pandemic, to maybe seven, to maybe eight, to then 10. But that's the force multiplier that we need because our sport has to matter to everybody and it has to be of value and be inclusive to everybody for that to be the case. These are these are all fantastic points, and and it, it you know we talked about it again off air before uh, bringing you on, and, and we didn't want to make it only about diversity. I, I and I told you straight up, we did speak freely. Did not, cool. Yeah, no, no, but like we yeah. didn't want to make it. Uh, oh well, it's Black History Month, so sure. we're bling on one black player. No, it's I understand. Like, I understand. You know great. what I mean? Yeah, we, of course. And, and you and I also discussed. Like I think we were both kind of like not fuming, but we got jacked up a little bit when we started talking about hashtag heroes who yeah. don't actually do anything. You know, like there's a lot of people sure. when certain incidents happened in the NHL last year that came to light um, or even George Floyd in, you know, the spring, Yeah, it was all of a sudden everybody was calling out everybody that was white to, to hashtag and tweet. And I got into a position where, you don't want to tweet the wrong thing. You don't want to hashtag the wrong thing. You don't want to understandable, but you want to, I I've always been one more of action. And so I ended up reaching out to every single player that, that I had ever coached of color. It could have been Indian. It could have been black. It could have been. And that, and with everything that was going on, my first little question was, how are you doing? Are you okay? And then, and then the next step was, what was it like playing for me in our environment? And did you feel safe? Did you feel accepted? Did you feel, you know, and, and we talked about these things and, and we talked about rules and, and you and I talked about music in the room. There's yeah. reasons why some coaches say, get the radio edition. Right. Because sure. walking by a room of U10 or U12 kids. Yeah. Who are going along to the re, you know latest whatever song, and all of a sudden, a bunch of white kids drop the N word. Sure. And the and the parents are standing there going, "Oh, it's just kids being kids." No, that's you allowing. Sure. The wrong thing. You're just allowing them to just think that that's okay because it's in a song, and it's not. Right. And for and for that reason, I wanted. I thought it would have been more. I thought it was more. Um, honest and genuine. If I reach out to a couple players to ask you a couple questions, so these are pre-recorded. I hope the sound is is okay. So yeah, the no first problem. player, Vimal Sukumaran, he went through a relatively public situation when he was playing for Providence College. He just played his senior year last year. Real bright kid, uh, was tough as nails player for us and skilled guy for us as well. Was a guy that converted from D to four just to play midget AAA and oh. went on to have a, a scholarship at, at Providence College. So I'm going to tee up Vimal Sukumaran here on the first question. Hey, John. Um, I just wanted to ask Mr. Weeks a quick question. Um, you know, looking back at my hockey career, there have been a lot of moments that have brought me happiness and, you know, a few that brought me sadness. And typically the ones that have brought me sadness deal with, you know, another player, another person talking or, you know, mentioning my race and the negative connotation. Um, and now that I have time to reflect, those moments, you know, typically still bother me. And I guess my question is, is that, you know, do you think does Mr. Weeks thinks of those moments back when he ran into them? And if so, do they still bother him? And again, if so, um, you know, what are some ways that he, he, he kind of gets by it and, you know, learns from it and becomes better from it? Thank you. Oh, man. It's almost going to make me tear up. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I got to try to fight through this. Nimal, thanks for asking. And, and I really appreciate you sharing your story. 
and and part of your story and your journey and what that looks like. And these are some of the very hurtful, unsavory parts of playing what is a great sport. But the people part, outside the actual sport part, the people part is the part we should get right and people should get right. But oftentimes, some people don't get right. So that's bigger than you, Demal, and that's that's certainly bigger than me and, and any of the listeners that are on the call. However, it's important and it's incumbent upon everybody to get the people part right. And I can tell you, not everybody does. And not everybody, whether you're playing, whether it happened to you playing youth hockey, playing at Providence College, where actually my buddy Rico Blasi is the, the associate uh, he's the associate athletic director there right now, actually. And I grew up with Rico, who's Italian, and grew up with his brother, Sergio Blasi, back home in Toronto. They're part of the Toronto Red Wing family. So I would tell you that it's okay to to be upset and it's okay to feel hurt because that's a part of your experience as it has been a part of mine. And I would say that honor that part of of the experience. But I would also tell you that it's okay to overcome that as well. And it's it's okay to persevere, which I know you have, and, and you probably are in different ways, but it's, it's okay to persevere. And it's also okay to lean on the people that are around you and your support group. And whether that's people that look like you or me, or that's people that are in a different part of the color wheel, as long as they're top quality people, they're top quality people. And if they're empathetic and they're compassionate and they listen and they respect you, then there'll be all those things and there'll be a great sounding board that you can share that with. And I would also tell you too, to continue to, to find the strength in who you are and, and what you are and where you're from and stand in your strength, stand in that strength and your diversity and your cultural richness is uh, and your cultural fabric is a strength. So feel proud of that, stand in that. And know that you are that and you are a hockey player and that you did play at an elite level and you did play at Providence College. And that's special in and of itself. And let that continue to fuel you. Put that in your gas tank and your energy tank as such. And let that fuel you like a rocket booster to do other things and accomplish other things. And whatever that looks like in the game, outside of the game, in business, entrepreneurship, in uh, coaching aspirations, managerial aspirations being an entrepreneur, whatever that may be, let that same negativity that those people have unfairly cast upon you, not that you need extra motivation, but hey, maybe your gas tank is on four fifths full, add that extra fifth, and now you got a full gas tank and use that to your advantage in a way that can just be an added energy source. So you convert the negative into a positive and, uh, and continue to push forward and continue to be all that you are and all that you're capable of being. Hope that helps, buddy. Stay hungry, stay humble, keep overperforming and overdelivering. Great things will come. Thanks, uh, Kevin. We've got another question here from Kerfala Toure. Kerf is now playing for the for his second year with Carlton Place in yep. the Junior A League. And uh, Kerf was another player that played for me. Both guys ended up in leadership roles, both wore letters and all earned. You know what I mean? There was awesome. nothing, there was never anything token about putting sure. these guys on the team. And yeah. I've actually known in, in Kerfala's case, I've actually known him since he was about 10 years old and uh -huh. he went through some unfortunate situations, but uh, his is a bit of a two-parter and I'm going to have to skip sure. between uh, clips here. No problem. Hey, yeah. Mr. Weeks, hope all is well. I have a couple questions for you. Um, society today is saying how our generation has become sensitive on a multitude of social issues, including racism. And I completely agree with that statement. As a result, I do let a good portion of jokes and comments fly by because I don't want to be viewed as someone who is sensitive and can't take a joke. So my question to you is at what point would you draw the line? Also, my father always told me to ignore all racial comments and slurs because you hear and see them every single day and all they want is a reaction out of it. And he always tells me never to feed off uh, the stupidities that people say. So how did you handle all the incidents you've encountered during your career, especially when you were younger? Thank you. Oh, uh, thank you, Kerf. Appreciate you, buddy. Uh, I would say that first of all, yeah, there are people are going to make certain jokes and use certain humor 
at times. And number one, you have to know your relationship with the person. Where are you in the relationship? How close are you? How tight are you? Are you boys? Are you not boys? You know, do you have that mutual respect? Is that the type of, do you guys have those jokes between each other or between your closest friends, knowing that you respect each other? Say your buddy's Greek and he knows that, uh, you know, you're a, a mixed young black man. And do you have that, that kind of, do you have that relationship that would allow for that is a one is a question. And is it done in a way that's respectful? Are there a lot of people around or there aren't? Or is it really mean-spirited? And are they really um, doing that in a way to hurt you emotionally or psychologically? So differentiate between those two. And then uh, and then also, too, a lot of times people say, well, oh, you can't say anything anymore. Oh, well, you can't, you can't, you're offending people all the time and that type of stuff. And sometimes people are accurate in saying that. But a lot of times that means that people just don't want to be held accountable and they want to be able to say what they want, how they want, when they want, whenever they want. And that's irresponsible on their behalf, not yours. So you shouldn't feel badly about that. And if something is said and it makes you uncomfortable, don't be shy to express the fact that it is uncomfortable or it is disrespectful. And you can express yourself in, in, in an appropriate way, whatever you feel is appropriate and decent. If somebody's saying something, you can say, hey, you know what, respectfully, that's that's just not the right thing to say. Or respectfully, I take offense to that. Or please don't say that around me. Or uh, hey, you got to stop. You know, you you can have your own compass of where you feel on your compass. Somebody is with what they say to you and how they say it. Uh, I would say, as far as what your dad mentioned, and, and I understand he has great intentions around that. And he's trying to protect you as well. But sometimes you do have to stand up for yourself, and sometimes you have to defend yourself, and and sometimes it's okay to say that. Hey, stop. Or that's freaking disrespectful. Don't say that. Or hey, please don't say that again. And I've had different variations of that depending on what somebody has or hasn't said or how they've said it, depending on who they are and what the dynamic is. So never feel afraid to stand up for yourself as a human being in a way that's that's right. And you know what? I've had different instances with people where they do the wrong thing. And if you say something, you're an asshole. And now you're bad. And if you don't say something, he's a great guy. He's so classy. That's BS. That's BS. You know, to me, a lot of how you interact with people and racism and these things, it's as simple as brushing your teeth. Brush your teeth. Like, it's that basic. You know what I mean? Like, brush your teeth three, four times a day. Chew some gum. Use some scope or some Listerine or whatever. And have some good oral hygiene. It's the same thing. Like, be proper to people. It's never a good day to be racist to somebody. It's never a good day to be, you know, um, you know, misogynist or, or anything of that nature. It's, that's never a good day. And especially in, in, in a mean spirited way too, that's never a good thing. So you can set some boundaries for yourself that feel comfortable for you and that feel authentic to you and never let, you should never have to apologize for that. You know, I've had instances where I've had coaches that have implied things. I've had coaches that have said things overtly. I've had different media people when I played that were implying things. And I have different media people that said things overtly. I had different fans that would literally sit behind the bench and, and yell racist things. And then some that said things overtly, different players that I played against, um, different managers that I played for, different GMs that I played for, kind of all across the board. And I know sometimes you can feel disempowered and you just want to push forward and you don't want to put any like kerosene oil on the flame. You don't want to put any gasoline on the flame to make it worse on the fire. But sometimes you have to stand up for yourself and you're very much within your right to be able to do that. And you owe that to yourself because that's a form of self-respect as well. And that's really important. So um, hopefully that helps you buddy on your journey. I'm on social. You can follow me at, at Twitter or at on Instagram or wherever, any other social channel. And I'm always around. I'm just a direct message away. Hope that helps. Kevin, your messages are, are fantastic. And, you know, when John and I started this podcast, we always said it was kind of our way to leave a little bit something behind, make the game a little bit better, and always try to, you know, obviously give back to the game. It's clear that obviously you gave back to the game and being an NHLer and, and providing fans with some amazing moments. But what's more important to me at this point, and after speaking with you for the last 45 minutes, has really been what you're doing uh, 
in your life after hockey and what you're giving back to the game. Um, and it's amazing. I know obviously you've had some aspirations to move to the you know, management side on an NHL with an NHL team. And I'd, I'd actually ask you to consider being the commissioner if you're open to it, not that I have a say or that I'm part of that uh, selection committee, but uh, it's clear to me that uh, you have a lot more to give to the game. And obviously I love seeing on camera, but I really hope that one day you get to uh, to take your talents into an NHL club or even uh, to an executive level position within the NHL office. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, let me start by saying this. I feel like, you know, there's different ways. I think everybody that's involved in the game has to respect it and can be a good steward for our sport. And that looks different for some people. That's being the best skate sharpener and the best equipment manager, the best associate equipment manager, the best medical trainer the best skill development coach, you know, the best acupuncturist. There's different ways to contribute. We're all here and we all have our own set of skills and, and expertise that we bring to the table. For me, it was stopping pucks. And, and you know, then it, in addition to that community work and now it's being a, a top level analyst and working with great people that are also super talented on our NHL network team, Rupper and Jameson Coyle and a lot of the other fellow analysts that we have in hosts. And and also, I've, to your point, I do feel like I have more to give and, and advocacy work and also from managerial and a senior leadership perspective. I feel like I have more to give because a, a lot of this really isn't, it's funny. In some of these interviews that I've had, people will ask about quote unquote experience or lack of experience. And at some point I want to say, listen, I wasn't washing cars and, uh, you know, I, <laughs> like I didn't come from a car wash in Dallas, Texas. Like I've. I've been a part of elite hockey since I was eight years old. I'm 45 and the last 24 years between playing and broadcasting as a part of the NHL family. So it's a wealth of experience. I play with a wealth of players, Brad Richards, Vinny LeCavier, Dave Andrichuk, Marty St. Louis, Yager, Messier, Luongo, Lundquist. I mean, Eliash, Brodeur. I can go down the list of the guys that I played with hall of famers and, and great players are really solid players in their own right and great people. And as many of those people I played against, Mario, Ray Bork, Patrick Waugh, Hashik, you know, I can, Gretz, I can go down the list. And the people that you play with, the people you play against, the people you play for, uh, you're coached by, you're managed by, that's a wealth of experience in my estimation. And I, I really think that the number one driver, even a lot of those, infor- in a lot of those, uh, conversations I've had around that are people. I start every single interview. It comes down to people. That's what it comes down to. That's what I'm saying. Whether it's grassroots that we're talking about, or if it's running an NHL club or, you know, doing my advocacy stuff for the league or working in a front office or running a club or being a team president, it comes down to people. My parents drilled that into my sister and, and my head since we were young, you know, the X's and O's and regroups and quick ups and D to D breakout D to D to center breakout, all that stuff, RVH for goalies on the posts, eh, all that stuff's going to be what it is. But at the end of the day, we're not in a commodities business. You know, we're not talking coal, oil, um, you know, natural gas. We're, we're talking, it's people. That's at the heart of our business. And I come back to that. I think that that's the part that we have to get right. And I think more people have to get that part right. And from when I, whether I'm talking to you or, you know, I was just on a previous podcast with Ray Whitney's wife, Bridget, and Jason LaBarbera's wife, Codette, on their Our Hockey Life podcast. Or when I drive in, in the NHL network in three hours and I get to the studio from, you know, from when I get to the front door, the security people to our facilities people to our audio people that are going to mic me up to my co-on-air people to everybody in between. Like, that's what it comes down to. So that's something that's really big for me. You know, we can get into, you know, all the technical stuff and traits of how you want your team to play, team identity, those sorts of things are a different layer, but none of those things are possible without getting the people part right. I love it. We could probably spend four more hours talking about people and, and building organizations. And it's clear that, uh, again, at some point it's going to happen for you. So I'm looking Thanks. forward to that day and, and promise us that when you get one of those jobs, you come back on with us and then and, and talk more about your 
your ascension and kind of the next steps, because I, I feel like we're seeing a, a moment in time of your evolution and it's certainly not done. So uh, really want to thank you for joining us today. It's, it's been great to listen to you talk about all the topics and, uh, and really enjoy uh, hearing you here. And obviously uh, we'll be watching you in a few hours when you're on Angel Network. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks all the listeners, all you hockey fans. If you're back uh, up in Quebec or, or around the world, wherever you're going to consume this, Appreciate you for being in NHL fans and your young players too. Thanks to those two young gentlemen for, for being vulnerable and sharing their part of their journey. And as I was happy to do with, uh, with you guys and, and with them and with the listeners, listen, guys, you're doing great work. I really love the fact that there's a consciousness around what you're doing. You're not filling time. It's not hot air and hot talk and hot takes. There's a substance and, and a value, a huge value to what you do with this and of course the other stuff when you're in the rink, but this is a really great resource because quite frankly, when, when we were younger as, as immigrant parents that I was fortunate enough to have, we were just learning as we went along. And part of that was actually better and that we learned as we went along. But as I got older and started having my own camps, it was really, uh, it's really enriching to be able to pass along some of your experience and for my parents and, you know, my dad, especially to be able to be in the rink and, and share some of his knowledge and, and whatever, what our experience has been like with the next generation in hopes that it's, it can help their parents and it can help the kids have a, a really good experience in the game. Because keep in mind, you know, I've seen enough instances now where kids that came to my own camp that I was funding have gone on to play in the NHL and win Stanley Cups. And that's a real, uh, that's a real nice feeling. And also there are a lot of other kids that went on to do other things. And their kids who, their dads I played with, Sam Gagne. And next thing you know, I'm playing against Sam Gagne in Edmonton. You know, I played with his dad, Dave. And so you see, there, there's all different cross-sections of players and people in our sport that we, we do interact with, we have, and we will. And just keep that in mind, because somebody might be, uh, you know, an Adam player playing for Detroit Little Caesars today. And that might be uh, Patrick Kane tomorrow. You never know. So just keep that in mind, but keep up the great work. And I look forward to joining you guys again. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thanks, Richie. Boys, thank you so much. Keep up the great work, man. Thanks. All right. Appreciate you guys and you advocating too. Thank you. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at HKY Masterclass. Also, we love hearing from our listeners and would love your feedback. You can reach us at thehockeymasterclass at gmail.com. Until next time, keep your head up and keep your stick on the ice.